Our Father, as we come this morning, our minds and our hearts naturally go out to those who are sick among us, uh, and we recognize, Lord, that uh, this is an unusual Sunday for us. It's a time when um, many of our people have uh, suffered from illness, and so we just uh, recognize, Lord, that you're the God who heals, and we appeal to you to do that on their behalf. And Lord, even as we ask you for healing in this life, we know that uh, any healing that we receive in this life is temporary because there will be one day when we leave this life. But Lord, what an opportunity and what a joy that will be when we transfer from this life to the next, when there will be no sickness and there will be no pain and grief and sorrow and heartache, but we will be forever in your presence. And so we pray for our people. But, Lord, we pray that you would also use these kinds of events in the life of our body to teach us that uh, this life is a temporal thing, and uh, it is just uh, the prelude to the one that is to come. And so help us, Lord, as we open your word this morning to uh, glean from it truth. Lord, you've told us where two or three are gathered, you're there in our midst. And so we ask and we pray, Lord, that you would come among us, that you would speak through your word, and that you would challenge our hearts for Christ's sake. Amen. If you would, uh, be turning in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. Prior to his death in 2011, George Gallup Jr., the, the famous pollster, referred to America as a nation of biblical illiterates. And polling data that was compiled from Gallup and some other sources 20 years ago now uh, revealed the following things. 20 years ago, remember, so I don't think things have got a whole lot better since then. Uh, Probably gotten a little worse. But 20 years ago, according to the polling data, only 4 in 10 Americans knew that Jesus was the one that delivered the Sermon on the Mount. A majority of American citizens could not name the four Gospels of the New Testament. Only three in ten teenagers knew why Easter was celebrated. Two-thirds of Americans believed that there were few, if any, absolute principles to direct human behavior. Three out of four Americans and nearly half of quote-unquote born-again Christians believe that the Bible teaches that God helps those that help themselves. Surveys of some mainline Protestants revealed that barely half of Lutherans, Methodists, and Presbyterians believed in the devil, but 56% of Lutherans and 49% of Methodists believe in UFOs. One-third believed in astrology. And while nearly three-fourths of all Americans at that time believed in hell, hardly any believed it would be their likely destination in eternity. This led former Secretary of Education William Bennett to conclude that we have become the kind of society that civilized countries used to send missionaries to. Those are sobering statistics, are they not? And again, this was 20 years ago probably more than 20 years ago, but at least 20 years ago when this was compiled. But before we become, is there something going on with me or is it something? I hear a clicking going on there. Is that? No, you're not hearing it? Oh, you are. (laughs) I'm sure hearing it. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's something I'm doing or what. But anyway, 
Um, they're sobering statistics, but before we look down our noses at the biblically illiterate folks in our world, I mean, it's easy for us to criticize people that don't know that Jesus wrote or Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount. It's easy for us to criticize people who don't even know who the four gospel writers were. It's easy for us to laugh at people who don't know what Easter is all about. But let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of us could actually take the Bible and refute the idea that God helps those who help themselves? How many of us, for someone that did not know that Easter was a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, could go to this book and find passages that are relevant to the subject to point out what the celebration of Easter is really all about? And how many of us could go to this book and we could clearly show who wrote the Sermon on the Mount, or better yet, summarize its contents for someone. So, yes, it's easy for us to look down our noses at people and laugh at people who don't know the most basic things about the Bible, but sometimes I think we deceive ourselves into thinking we know more than we do. And we have a great responsibility to understand the Scripture. Our message this morning is coming from 2 Timothy and this was Paul's final letter that he wrote prior to his death. Uh, as he wrote, he was probably in prison in Rome. He was writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. And Paul knew that his time was at hand. He tells us that in the letter, that um, the time of my departure is here. And this was just very shortly before Paul was executed for his faith. And so when we look at this and we look at this passage that we're going to kind of pull out of chapter 3 here, we need to understand the context in which it was written. It was written from someone who understood what suffering was all about. So if you would, stand with me, and we're going to read verses 10 through 17. I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, so uh, you can follow along in your version. Beginning in verse 10, but you have followed my teaching, Timothy, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and suffering that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What, persecu what persecutions I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and impostors will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The grass withers and the flower falls. You can be seated. Now, right away when we come to this text in verse 10, uh, my translation says, but you. 
uh, yours may say you however or something like that. So there was either a but or a however or something at the beginning of verse 10. And immediately when we see that in Scripture, we have to ask ourselves, okay, what does that but or however uh, connect us to? What, what's going on here? We can't just really jump right in the middle of it uh, as if it was a whole new thought process on Paul's part because it wasn't. So he's obviously going back to a passage that we didn't really read this morning. But if you'll jump right back to uh, the very first verse of chapter 3, this is the context in which Paul is about to make the comments that we're going to look at this morning. But you know this, hard times will come in the last days. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders without self-control, brutal without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. That's a nasty list, isn't it? And what does Paul say? Avoid these people. That's his advice to Timothy. Avoid such people. Now, lest you think that this is only referring to the last days as in immediately before the coming of Christ, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense for him to exhort Timothy because Timothy wasn't going to be here immediately prior to the return of Christ. So this was going on in their day as well. Is it going on in our day? Oh, yeah, you bet. But it was, it's been going on from down through the annals of time since, since Christ walked on this earth. So this was going on in Timothy's day. It's going on in our day. So Paul's advice is relevant to us today. So after he tells Timothy to avoid these people, here in verse 10, he turns and he reminds Timothy of a truth. And he says, but you, Timothy, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love and endurance. Now, at first blush, that almost sounds like a little bit of an arrogant kind of thing to say, doesn't it? How many of you would say, hey... You're a good man, Luke, because you followed me, right? I mean, that sounds kind of brash, doesn't it? But Paul could say that, and he could say it honestly and remind Timothy, you have been a good disciple, right? And so this is one of those things that when I read it, I just think, how far short do we fall of the standard that Paul has set for us here? There's seven specific things that Paul mentions here that Timothy has been emulating in his life, and the first one is his teaching. And so what about us today? You might say, well, I'm not a teacher, so this one doesn't really apply to me. Well, I kind of beg to differ with you because you may not be a teacher in a formal sense. In other words, you might not teach a Sunday school class or you might not uh, you know, lead a home group or stand in the pulpit or something like that. But I think most of us, I, let me change that, I think all of us teach a whole lot more by our daily lives and actions and attitudes than we ever realize. That's particularly true at home. Uh, your kids are watching. Other people are watching. And so 
the daily conversations that you engage in, the interactions that you engage in with other people, the priorities that you set in your life, they teach volumes about what you really believe. You, this morning, have taken time out of a day when it would have been really easy to just say, you know what, ain't going to be many folks there. I'm going to go to the lake. I'm going to take the day off, whatever. Your actions speak to the fact that you value the fellowship of the saints. You're saying something to everyone here and maybe to the neighbors that you live with. You are saying, this is important to me. So how we live, how we act teaches. We do teach. Our teaching may be good, it may be bad, but in one sense, we're all teachers. The second thing that Paul points to is his own conduct. And Paul is able to say, uh, don't simply do what I say, do as I do. Now, we've heard that twisted around a little bit, haven't we? Sometimes we hear, you know, don't do as I say, just do as I do. But Paul is able to say, do as I do. Did I say that right? Don't, don't do as, I said that backwards, I think. And I knew that didn't sound right. <laughs> don't do as I do, do as I say. Yeah. Anyway, you, you got the idea, right? But Paul was able to say, Paul was able to say, don't simply do what I say. Follow my example. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, how many of us could say that? Honestly and truthfully, you can imitate me as I imitate Christ. But thirdly, Paul appeals to his purpose or aim in life. And I think it's uh, very clear when we read the scriptures that Paul's life was characterized by a singular purpose. He actually sums this up quite well in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where he says, My goal is to know him, that is Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So Paul had a singular purpose in life, to follow hard after Christ and to know him. That's a wonderful thing to know the son of the living God. And that was Paul's goal, to know him in the power of his resurrection. But not only that, the fellowship of his sufferings. That's important. The fourth thing that Paul mentions here is faith. Emulate my faith. And oh, by the way, Timothy, you've been doing this. This is not really an appeal to Timothy to do this. This is reminding Timothy of what he's been doing. He's encouraging Timothy. He said, you've been doing this. I mean, look at the wording. He says, you have followed my teaching, right? Your translation may read slightly different, but the idea is that you've been doing this. This is what you're all about, Timothy, and I'm encouraging you here by reminding you of this. Well, faith is really the very essence of the entire Christian life, is it not? Now, in this case, uh, we, you know, we can look at faith in two different ways, and the one of them is what I call the Romans 5.1 aspect of faith, where Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a believer this morning, that's true of you. There was a time when you were at enmity with God, but through the cross, through faith, and faith in the work, the finished work of Christ on the cross, that relationship of enmity with God has been change to a relationship of peace with God. 
That's one aspect of faith, right? I'm not thinking that's really what Paul has in mind here when he says this. I think what Paul is appealing to here is more what I would call the Galatians 2.20 kind of faith. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the... Let me, let me try it this way. I think it was bumping against me here. Let me see if that helps at all. You let me know. Um, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I think what Paul is really appealing to here is that daily walk, that life of faith that he's engaged in. Because faith is the beginning of our walk, but it's also the characteristic of our entire uh, journey through this life. If you're a believer, you are to live by faith each and every day of your life. And Paul is saying, Timothy, I see you doing that. I see you emulating that in my life. And then he talks about patience, okay? Patience is a rare virtue. But it's one of the marks of a good leader. Um, we often have a tendency to want people to do like my mother used to say, just stand up, sit up, and act right. You know, straighten up. And yet, maturity takes time, doesn't it? And a good leader will recognize that maturity takes time. And a good leader will tenderly correct and he'll be patient and he will guide and he'll counsel and he'll give advice and he will work with people who are struggling in order to bring them to a greater level of maturity. Now, Paul did a great job of that. You see his letters to the churches. They dealt with stuff. I mean, we have some issues in our church from time to time, but some of the stuff they were dealing with back then, good grief. I don't even want to think about it. But Paul dealt with it, but he dealt with it properly. Sometimes he was firm, sometimes he was brash, but many times he was gentle. And he worked with people because he was a man of patience. When there was false teaching in the church, mind you, he wasn't patient with the false teachers. Uh, he slammed them really hard, but he was patient with the victims of the false teaching. And that's the point here. So Paul was a patient man. And then he appeals to love. Well, I don't even think this needs much comment. I mean, you look at Paul's entire life, it was one just absolutely characterized by love for God, love for Christ, and love for his people. Paul labored night and day, not out of a sense of obligation, but out of a concern and a love and a compassion for the church. For God's people and because he knew the one who had redeemed him and Paul was a man whose life was characterized by love and then the seventh thing here is that of endurance or steadfastness maybe your translation uses that word well one thing we can say of Paul is he was consistently focused on the task at hand he was steadfast unmovable Times of difficulty would come his way, persecution would come his way, and Paul just charted that course. And he was steadfast, he 
never got sidetracked that we know of, at least we don't read of that. We see Paul just consistently being steadfast in his devotion and allegiance and service to Christ. Again, if we were to go back to Philippians chapter 3, we'd find these words where Paul said, This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward unto those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and your past bothers you. Uh, you know what? There isn't anything you can do to change that. You can't go back and relive the past. What did Paul say? I forget the past, but my focus right now is on the goal ahead of me. Uh, if you're running a race, you may have started out poorly and you might have got behind the curve, but you know what? You can't go back and start it all over again. But when you get your feet under you, you can press toward the goal. And that's what Paul is doing here. And Paul in sets a great example for Timothy, and he sets a great example for us. Don't let your past be used by the devil to destroy your future. Press on toward the high calling. Press on toward the mark like Paul did. Well, look again at verse 11, because he mentions all these things, and then my Bible says, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me. And then he mentions three cities or three towns. He says, he mentions Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Now, these were towns that he had probably visited in all three of his missionary journeys. Uh, but we don't know all the details of everything that happened there. Uh, if we did, again, it would be like John who said, if I were to write everything that Jesus did, all the books in the world couldn't contain it. So we have a, an idea of some of the things that happened. We don't know everything that happened, but obviously there was great persecution. And if we were to take the time this morning, we could go back to Acts 13 and 14 on his first missionary journey and get a pretty good idea of what he's talking about here. If we went back, we would find that when they were at Antioch, when Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch, they'd been run out of town. And then when they get to Iconium, the plots discovered to stone them, and they had to flee for their lives. And they go to Lystra, and at Lystra, Paul actually is stoned and left for dead. So he has suffered a great deal in the midst of this. And he appeals to that, but then, and this is the verse that I would just as soon not mention because it's not comfortable for us, but look at verse 12. What does it say? In fact, all, that's, that's you, that's me, isn't it? That's everybody. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, this is hard for us to relate to because we don't have the broad spectrum of history in our lives like we ought to have many times. Uh, a lot of us, all we know is our own little corner of the world. And my dad used to say all the time, one half of the world doesn't know how the other half lives. If you were in North Korea, this verse would jump out at you like off the page. Or if you lived at a different time in history, this verse would have jumped out of the pages of Scripture to you. You see, you and I, and there may be an exception, but I don't know of any here, 
where anybody has really suffered true persecution. We have been living most of our lives, for me all of my life, in a time and in a place where we have enjoyed unprecedented religious freedom and liberty. Now, throughout history, toleration for Christianity has kind of waxed and waned, and there were times when there was intense persecution of Christians, and then there were times when Christianity was tolerated by the state and even at some level encouraged by the state from time to time. But we've not really experienced that. I hear people sometimes who talk about being persecuted, and I'm thinking, yeah, you don't even know what you're talking about because you hadn't really suffered persecution, uh, not in the way Paul did, not in the way our brothers and sisters are in some parts of the world today. But Paul says all who want to live a godly life can expect this. We can expect persecution. Now, I'm not a prophet, and I'm not telling you what's going to happen five, ten years from now, but I suspect from what I'm seeing in what's going on in the world around us and in our country today, I suspect that the days of unprecedented religious liberty and freedom that we have known are probably drawing to a close. I don't know what that's going to look like, I don't know how quickly that will happen, but I have been amazed just in the past 10 years how much things have changed in our society. And when you think back to the polling data that we mentioned there at the beginning 20 years ago, that was a level of ignorance of Scripture back then. A lot of those folks are in positions of authority in our day and time right now, making decisions that affect us in our lives and in our society. So I'm not too sure that we may not experience some level of persecution even in my lifetime, in my children's lifetime, in my grandchildren's lifetime. I'm pretty sure for sure that's going to happen. I don't know. Again, I'm not predicting the future because I don't know what the future holds. But the question I have for you today is how prepared are we as a church to meet that challenge should persecution come our way? Have we thought about this? Are we thinking about this? Are we preparing about this? Preparing for it, I should say. Because it could happen. It has happened over and over and over again in history, and it could very well happen to us today. And just so we don't misunderstand here, Paul is not talking about economic downturns and things like that, okay? He's not talking about, oh, it's, you know, my mortgage rate went up or whatever, you know. I mean, or I took a pay cut on the job or I got laid off uh, because there wasn't enough work to go around. That doesn't seem to be an issue right now, but it could be. Um, so what is he talking about? Well, look at what he says in verse 13. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Persecution comes from people. It's not just gone through hard times. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Paul is talking about here. The persecution that he endured came from people. And so Paul is appealing to Timothy and reminding him of what Paul himself had gone through at Iconium and Lystra and Antioch. And he is saying, we can expect this. 
This is to be expected for the average Christian. And that persecution, by the way, if you go back and read those accounts, most of it, you know where it came from? The religious community. They were the ones that stirred up the crowd against Paul and Barnabas. Now, we ought not be too surprised if a secular, godless uh, government institutes some kind of policy that crimps our style. But where we could be blindsided if we're not careful is that there may be people that rise up from even the religious communities in our world and possibly even from with our own ranks that fit this category. How does Paul describe these people? He says they're evil, they're imposters, and they will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. Listen, when you see a false preacher on TV, and I could name some of them for you, but I, yeah, I will too, you know. <laughs> Kenneth Copeland, Jesse Duplantis, Benny Hinn, those are some of the more extreme examples, but there are some less extreme examples as well. These are not people that are just misguided in their understanding of Scripture. Paul says they're evil. They're imposters. They're frauds. Not only do they deceive you, but they themselves are deceived. They're deceiving you and they're deceiving themselves. And we have to be careful of that kind of thing. Because those are the kind of folks that may turn against us when we stand firm on the truth of Scripture. So, Paul, how do we deal with all this? Okay, you've, you've told us that this is going to get bad, and you've told Timothy that evil people and imposters are going to get worse and worse. What do we do about that? Well, look at verse 14 very first thing that Paul tells Timothy is, as for you, do what? Continue. Continue in what? Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. This is past tense, isn't it? Paul is telling Timothy to stand firm in what you have already believed. Don't go out looking for some new revelation. The people who always follow after folks who have some word of knowledge or some new revelation about God's character or God's way of dealing with men, those folks fall into a huge trap. Don't be like that. Jude speaks of contending for the, for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We're not going to wake up a year from now and find out that God has sent some new revelation, new insight that we didn't know about. Now, we might, and hopefully we will, have a better understanding of what he's already given us, but it's not going to be anything new. It's the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then Paul goes on to remind Timothy of how he came about that information. Look at the last part of verse 14. You know, and uh, my translation says, those who taught you, which I think is a good translation. If you have uh, an ESV, it may say, knowing from whom you have learned it. 
uh, that's good too as long as you understand that that word for whom is plural in the original. The, ES, or the CSB brought that out pretty clearly from those who have taught you. But it's not just from one source, okay? So who are these people? Well, I mean, quite obviously, he probably learned a lot from the Apostle Paul. No, no doubt about that, but Paul doesn't take the credit for it here, does he? He's not about to take the credit. Who, who else was involved in this process? Well, flip back in the book of 2 Timothy, just back to chapter 1, probably just a page or so in your Bible. And look at verse 5. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Where do you learn it? He learned it at home. Good answer. He learned it at home. And all oh, by the way, go back now to our text in chapter 3 and look at verse 15. When did he learn it? Yeah, your translation may say childhood. Mine says infancy. I think infancy is the better translation, actually, because this is the same word, by the way, that was used. You remember in Luke's gospel when... John the Baptist, when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist and Mary came to see Elizabeth and the babe leaped in her womb, in Elizabeth's womb, that's the same word. Brethos. This is the same word that was used even for a child that hadn't even been born yet. So I think there's a great lesson here for us, especially those of us that are parents or like me, grandparents, um, we, have a, we can look at this and say, you know what? It is never too early to teach your children the truth of Scripture. Sometimes we get the idea that these things are too hard to understand. No, no, no. That's not the case at all. They're not too hard to understand. Uh, in fact, this text, I think, speaks very strongly to what theologians, and this is a big word, and I mispronounce it every time I try, but I'll give you the meaning of it, and we won't use it anymore, but just in case you see the word so you know what it means, but perspicuity of Scripture. Whoever came up with that, I don't know. They were smarter than me, I guess, but what does it mean, the perspicuity of Scripture? Well, it simply means clarity. It means that the Scriptures are clear. It means that the Bible is intelligible, it means that the Bible is easy to understand. It's not a book where you have to dig for some hidden meaning. Okay? It's clear. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't some sections of Scripture that cause us great difficulty. Okay? I mean, we're in good company if that's the case, because even Peter said that. Uh, Peter, talking about Paul's writings in 2 Peter chapter 3, said, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Amen. There are some things in Isaiah and in Leviticus and in Jeremiah and in Daniel that are hard for me to understand. Okay? 
Peter said, there's some things that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, are we going to fall into the category of the ignorant and the unstable? Well, there's only one way to avoid that, isn't there? We've got to study this book. We've got to study it. In fact, there's an indication that even the writers themselves, when they penned the words, may not have fully understood the implications of all that they wrote. Again, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 said, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. They inquired and they searched carefully, just like you and I. These were people who were authors of Scripture. And Peter said they had to inquire, they had to search carefully about the things they were writing about. If they had to do it, you better believe I got to do it. And you got to do it too. We must study the book. Now, having said all of that, I want to come back to that original thought of the clarity of Scripture. What that simply means is that, and we could say it pretty succinctly, that the Bible says what it means and means what it says. If you want to sum it up, that's that's the way we can say it. The Bible says what it means and it means what it says. It's not hiding something in some masked format that we have to dig in and figure out what the real meaning is. Now, there is truth that uh, Jesus said that there are things that have been hidden from the wise and prudent that have been revealed unto babes. But I like that part, revealed unto babes. Uh, I'm kind of a babe in my understanding sometimes. I'm not too smart. There's a whole lot of folks out there that know a lot more than I do and have forgot a lot more than I'll ever learn. So I'm, I'm one of those folks that, yeah, it's, if it's been revealed to babes, maybe I got a chance here. Well, I love the way the um, Westminster Confession of Faith puts this. Uh, the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith said this. They said, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. In other words... They're not all that clear sometimes at face value, and some people may understand them better than others. Yet, those things that are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Even Timothy, as a little child, could understand. And your kids can too, if you teach them right. But here's another consideration in this text. Uh, when Timothy's mother and grandmother were teaching them uh, and your translation might use the term the sacred writings or maybe the sacred scriptures, scripture they talking about had to be the old testament right 
The New Testament canon hadn't been completed yet. In fact, this book that Paul's writing right here, hadn't, it's part of our Bible, but he's just writing it. So clearly, these were the Old Testament scriptures. And yet look at what Paul says about this. In verse 15, the last part of verse 15, speaking of the sacred scriptures, are able to do what? Make you wise for salvation. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Through faith in Christ Jesus. The Old Testament scriptures are able, Timothy, to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ. How is that so? It's because the Old Testament consistently pointed toward Christ. In all of its types and shadows, everything pointed toward Christ. I love Luke chapter 24, one of my favorite accounts in all the Bible. And I probably mentioned this standing here before, but I'm going to do it again. You remember when Jesus had risen from the dead and the disciples were on the way to Emmaus? And they're all dejected, and they're down, and they're talking about what's going on. And here comes Jesus, and he just comes up alongside of them and says, you know, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, they're like, are you the only person in town that hasn't heard what's happened here in the past few days? He's like, what? What things? And they're like, well, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but they've killed him. And they buried him. And now we have some of our women that went to the tomb and they couldn't find his body. And, and they made this claim that angels were there and said that he's risen. And we don't get it. They still don't know who Jesus is, right? I mean, what does he do? He, he kind of chastises them a little bit. And he says, are you so slow? You guys are dull. Do you not know what the scripture says? And I love verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself. That's the Old Testament. That's the value of the Old Testament scriptures. Someone has uh, said, and this may be a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's a pretty good general rule. They said that the Bible is kind of like a grand three-act play. And Act 1 runs all the way from Genesis to Malachi. And the theme of Act 1 is he's coming. And then Act 2 runs from Matthew, Matthew to John, and the theme of Act 2 is he's here. And Act 3 runs all the way from Acts to Revelation, and the theme is he's coming again. All the Scripture points to Christ. If we ignore the Old Testament, we miss so much of what the Bible has to say. And, you know, when folks try to claim that the Old Testament really doesn't have much value for you as a believer today, I wonder if they've ever read 1 Timothy 3. Ever take the time to do that? Or as one prominent preacher has made the comment in our day that believers need to learn how to unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. And I want to say... Dude, have you ever read the Old Testament? I mean, have you ever read it? How could you say that? You might have read it, but you sure don't seem to understand it to make such a comment. The Old Testament is valuable to us today. 
If you want to get rid of the Old Testament, you might as well take the first two-thirds of your Bible out and rip it out and throw it in the trash. Or just get yourself a New Testament and be done with it. No, no, no. The Old Testament is valuable. And then just to verify this and just to hammer the point home, look at what Paul says in verse 16. All, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Every bit of it. Your translation may say God breathed. That's a good translation. The word there, uh, well, first of all, what do we mean when we say the Bible's inspired? Because we can throw that term around a lot, and it might mean different things to different people. Well, one thing it does not mean is that the Bible is simply an inspiring book to read, that it inspires us as we read it. There are people that have that idea that that's what biblical inspiration is all about, that as I read this book, I become inspired. Well, that may be true. I don't doubt that that can happen, and I hope that there are times when it happens to you. It happens to me. But that is definitely not the meaning that Paul has in mind here. That The meaning of the Greek word has nothing to do with the effect that God's word has on me. The word is theonoustos, and it comes from two Greek words, theos, which is God, and then the word nuo, which means to breathe. So when your translation, if it says God breathed or breathed out by God, that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Now, the King James writers, and probably back in Tyndall, and I, don't, I didn't go back and look at Tyndall, but uh, for many years, Bibles used the word inspired. But today, the word inspired has kind of been twisted a little bit. So I like that term, God breathed, because that really brings it home, really tells us what's going on here. It was almost as if God exhaled, and the result was Scripture. Just think of yourself on a cold winter day, and you go outside, and you exhale, and you see that your breath go out. That's kind of the idea here, that God breathed out his word. So what did that, how did that work? Well, here again, we have this fancy term that theologians use, and, and I get it. You know, these folks are smart, and they're in the halls of academia, but sometimes just make it simple for us farm boys, you know, that, you know, just, I mean, just tell me what the word means. But, but there's a word they use called plenary inspiration. Well, that word comes from the Latin word plenus, which means full. And I don't even know if I'm pronouncing plenus correctly. I, I never studied Latin. Maybe some of you did, so you can correct me later. Or correct me now. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get too offended by that. So, but the word, the idea is something that is unqualified. It's absolute. It's complete in every respect. So when we look at that, when we use this term, that the Bible is inspired, complete, absolute in every respect and we go back and we look at what Paul says here that all scripture is inspired by God really the way we can say this is that all scripture is inspired by God in its totality everything is inspired by God but not only is all scripture inspired by God all scripture is totally inspired by God that means that it's not a mixture of God's ideas and man's ideas 
You see, Scripture was inspired by God. Every word in the original manuscripts, which, by the way, we don't have, and that's an argument I don't have time to get into today. Trust me, we have so many documents that there is no question whatsoever that this book you hold in your hand is absolutely the Word of God. Uh, and we can talk about that afterward or on another day. But, but some people will bring that up. Well, you don't have the original autograph, so how can you trust it? Well, yeah, you can trust it. We have far more evidence for this book than you have for just about any other historical document of that, way more than any other historical document of that time. But nonetheless, people will also say, well, men wrote the Bible, so how can it be reliable? Well, you know, here's... Here's what you have to do, and you have to, and this is what we call scripture authenticating itself. And people say, well, that's circular reasoning. Yeah, okay, but when there's nothing higher to appeal to than God Himself and God's Word, what are you going to appeal to? I mean, if you want to appeal to the highest authority, that's God. And so, how can the scripture not be self authenticating? But turn with me to, um, let's see here, I lost my. Place. Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter chapter one and verses twenty and twenty-one. Oh, I hope if I was in Second Peter instead of First Peter. A little bit different. Yeah, but I was in First Peter in my Bible. <laughs> yeah, I had to write reference here, but I didn't pay attention in my Bible. And I'm like, yeah, that ain't it. Okay, Second Peter chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-one. Above all, you know this: no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word carried along is an interesting word. It's the same word that Paul uses over in Acts 27 when, if you remember, when they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. It's the same word that Paul, that is used, that Luke uses, I'm sorry, Luke wrote the book of Acts, uh, the same word that Luke uses to describe the ship being carried along and tossed by the wind in the midst of a violent storm prior to the shipwreck. And so when men wrote the word of God, they were being carried along in the same way that the wind carried along that ship. And as they wrote, they penned the very words of God. But here again, we have to be a little careful because... It's easy to get the idea that they were kind of like stenographers that were just taking dictation. Maybe you've been in a court setting and you have the person who's the court recorder and they're just writing down everything that's said or I guess now they speak into a, I don't know what it is. I mean, it's a recorder anyway. But, but basically the idea some people have is as if these people were just like human computers or human typewriters and they're just punching out what God said. That's not the case at all. Uh, the word of God was transmitted through human instrumentality without violating 
who the person was. It didn't violate their personality, their level of education, any of that stuff. And yet, God did it in such a way that when Paul wrote, the very things that came through his arm, his hand, and his writing instrument and got onto the paper were words of God. And yet they were Paul's words. So is the Bible written by men or written by God? And the answer is yes. Both. But you can detect the personalities of the writers in their writings if you look carefully. Uh, if you read the writings of Dr. Luke, the physician, in Luke's gospel in the book of Acts, you're going to find a slightly different flavor than when you read the writings of John or Peter, who were fishermen. And yet, both of those, as they wrote, the Holy Spirit superintended their writing in such a way that everything they wrote is totally, 100%, the truth of God. And that leads us to one more thing. And again, we could talk about this for weeks probably, but uh, what we call the doctrine of inerrancy. And it's really a, a pretty simple thing when you think about it because the logic of inerrancy is simply rooted in the doctrine of inspiration or the scripture being God-breathed. Because you only have two options. Either... All scripture is not given by inspiration of God. If you claim or if you hear someone claim that there's errors in this book, well, then either one, it's not God-breathed, or number two, God is capable of making a mistake. In either case, if that were true, our faith would be severely undermined. You see, because of the way that God carried along the writer's by the Holy Spirit and allowed their words to come out on paper as being the very word of God himself, you and I have hope that this is the one thing in life that I can look to and it is absolute. I can get a thousand different opinions about politics. I can get a thousand, not a thousand, maybe you can get different opinions from your doctor, right? You go to a different doctor, you get a different opinion. This is the medical manual for the human condition. And it's absolute, doesn't change. So how do we apply all this in our lives? Well, Paul, in the last part of verse 16 and verse 17, explains how this applies in our daily lives. He began by saying all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So it's profitable for a couple of things. There's actually four specific ways that Paul lists that it's profitable here. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, or maybe your translation says rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. So those four things, even though they're four different things, they kind of neatly break down into two basic categories. Uh, so if you take teaching and training and, and tie them together, and you take... Uh, reproof and correction and tie them together, what you find then is that on the one hand, the teaching and the training is what I would call the proactive benefit of Scripture. Uh, now, we typically think of teaching prior to training. Is that right? You've got to be taught something before you can practice it. 
Um, you know, if there was a doctor in town that told me, first of all, he probably wouldn't tell me because he'd be illegal, but if he told me, you know, I've never been to medical school, but I learned everything I know from hands-on training. I'd be like, yeah, there's a word for you. It's called a quack, right? You going to go to that guy? Well, I learned it all hands-on. I didn't need to go to medical school. Yeah, I don't think so. But then there's also the possibility that somebody went to medical school and they never had any hands-on experience. They never did their clinicals, and they're trying to practice medicine. You going to go to that person? No, I don't think so, right? Well, you see, both of those are essential because teaching gives the information, training puts it into practice in our lives. And the Bible fulfills both of those functions for us. It teaches us and it exhorts us to put those things into practice. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of believers out there that fit into those two categories that I just ridiculously mentioned. I know people that'll say, I don't want to hear about all that theology. I don't want doctrine. Just tell me how to live my life. Just give me the real deal. I just want the experience of being a Christian. Yeah, it don't work that way. It really doesn't work that way. That's like the doctor trying to practice medicine who never went to medical school. But there are also people that I've encountered in life who all they want to do is study the academics and the theology. But they don't put it in practice in their lives. They're the guys that have all the answers until you kind of get to know them a little better and you find out, yeah, your life's pretty jacked up. You know, you, you don't really know what this means. You just know it up here. You've never put it into practice. Both of those are wrong. But properly applied, teaching and training are proactive in our lives. But then you have this category of reproof and correction, and just like uh, teaching logically comes before training, uh, when I first looked at this, I thought, well, correction would probably come before reproof or rebuke until I got to looking at what the meaning of the words were. And I realized it's the other way around. Uh, the word for reproof carries the idea of proving something or convicting someone of something. So... We tend to think of words like reprove and rebuke as being like, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord, you know, and, you know, it's like a, a bad thing. But that's not what the word really means. The word is that you are convinced, convicted of something, and this can apply to your life or your theology or your doctrine. Uh, one translation, uh, the New Living Translation, actually, uh, which sometimes people don't care for, but I think it hit the nail on the head on this one. It renders this as Scripture makes us realize what is wrong in our lives. That pretty well captures the idea. It makes us realize what's wrong. And so when it makes me realize what's wrong, you see, before my bad theology can be corrected and my misunderstanding of Scripture can be corrected, I have to first be shown that what I do believe now isn't right. Then I can correct it. Then I can make the change. If my lifestyle isn't pleasing to the Lord, I have to first come to the realization that this is sin. This is not pleasing to God. And then it can be corrected. And so in both cases, I have to be convicted or convinced that what I believe or how I'm living is wrong, and then comes the correction. 
And that word correction has the idea of restoring to a proper state or to make something straight. Uh, again, we might say that the scripture is profitable in the sense that it straightens us out. My mama used to like that term too. I'm going to straighten you out. You don't ship up, <laughs> shape up and do right. Uh, she's been reading her Bible, I guess. <laughs> so, so what's the end goal here? Well, verse 17 says, so that the man of God can be complete and equipped for every good work. The truth of Scripture rightly applied on our lives matures us, completes us, enables us to live in a way that is pleasing to God. It equips us for every good work. But in closing, I don't want us to just stop right here. I want us to go back and think about the context in which we began and the context here in which Paul began. It was a context of persecution and hardship and suffering. That's where he started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 3. And as we wrap this up, I want us to think in terms of what if hardship and difficulty should come to your doorstep in the future? How are you going to respond? Paul appeals to the Scripture as being absolutely our guideline for faith and practice. And I submit to you that that's where we need to be in our preparation for the eventual possibility that we might face the same kind of thing. On November 28, 1965, Navy Commander Harold Rutledge's F-8 Crusader was shot down over North Vietnam. And for the next seven and a half years, Rutledge would live in unbelievable squalor in the prison camp and endure unimaginable torment from his captors. And Rutledge stated that during those years, he struggled mightily to remember passages of Scripture that he learned as a child and bits of sermons that he'd heard, heard growing up in his church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and hymns that he had learned. And Rutledge said, I never dreamed that I would spend seven years, five in solitary confinement in a prison in North Vietnam, or that thinking about one memorized Bible verse could make the whole day bearable. If persecution comes to our doorstep, what is it that's going to make our lives bearable? I believe it's the same kind of thing that sustained Commander Rutledge. Now, obviously, we will need the grace of God, but how's that grace of God going to come to us? Same way it comes to us now through this book. Difference is, you've got bunches of them laying around your house right now. What if there came a time when you couldn't get your hands on this thing? Psalmist said, Your word I have hid in my heart. The only way we're going to do that is by digging in and studying and learning the precepts that it teaches us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that you have given us your written testimony, that we have a sure word of prophecy, that we can hold on to it and depend on it because we know that it came from your hand and that your hand is one that cannot make a mistake. Your hand is one that is 
given us your word out of your compassion and concern to your, for your people. And Lord, we also recognize that this same book that gives comfort to us will bring judgment to those who reject you. And so I pray that if there's anyone here that has not trusted by faith in the finished work of Christ, that they would recognize that this book cuts both ways. It's a two-edged sword, and it can bring comfort, but it can bring judgment. And so, Lord, I pray that for those of us to whom it brings comfort, you would encourage our hearts to study it, value it, and learn it even more as the future days come upon us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.